So we briefly mentioned last week that when we were on vacation at the beach, we were sitting out on the balcony. Um, Ainsley was asleep and we were just kind of chilling out a moment of, of quiet on our family vacation that wasn't as relaxing as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and um, we really we started talking about politics and it, it came from a question that I had to Seth about some things that I had been seeing on Facebook um, where people who claim Christ were maybe saying things that they shouldn't say about people specifically. And my initial question to Seth was if... Um, if Nancy Pelosi was standing right in front of Jesus, what would Jesus say about Nancy Pelosi? And the specific reason why I asked that was because I had seen Christians, preachers of the gospel, and people who claim Christ saying really nasty, awful things about Nancy Pelosi and other people who are on the other side of politics than I typically tend to be. And it, it grieved my heart because... I recognize that, that that's probably not how Jesus would talk to or about Nancy or other people in politics or in our world. And it's probably not how we're supposed to talk either. And from that became like this two-hour conversation where we really delved into um, what we're going to talk about today. And uh, we, we said, man, our church needs to hear this because we want... Um, Believers Fellowship and anyone else watching and hearing to uh, recognize the heart of Jesus when it comes to the politics and, and politics of Jesus. So, and and my answer to that question, she said, you know, uh, if and that was the example because we had seen a few memes that day of that particular politician. Memes are kind of like they're funny, but also they're kind of awful at the same time, you know. But um, my answer to it was, if Jesus was standing in front of Nancy or anyone else, he would say, you're a beloved daughter created in the image of God. And, and then getting to that place where that's how we see people, um, no matter what they believe or no matter what. So it, let's say that if someone's watching or someone's in the room and, and your views are, are sort of on the other end of the spectrum. And Katie asked you the question, uh, if, if Donald Trump was standing right in front of Jesus, what would he say? And Jesus, your beloved son, created in the image of God. You, you know, it's, 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 a, it's for everybody. That, that answer would be for everyone. And I love that when Jesus did have people come in front of him who weren't serving God, who were living very sinful lives, he called them son or daughter. He sat down to the table with them. He invited them into his presence. You know, there wasn't, oh, well, I'm going to label this person a certain thing and, and, you know, they didn't have memes back then, but you know the memes where we give like dragon eyes to the person that we don't uh, agree with uh, uh, politically or whatever, and, and they, they put the filter on it to make that person just look so demonic and all those kinds of things. And, and you know, I, God just did, Jesus just didn't talk to people like that. When he did talk harshly to people was usually the religious Bible-believing people that he spoke harshly to, not the ones that were just deceived that were just deceived by the enemy. And so that's how the conversation kind of got started. And actually, this is the scripture that I want to kind of base all of this on that we're going to look at. Look at uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. We've got to go to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says, God created mankind in his own image, and the image of God he created them male and female. This is where we have to start. Politics is about how people live together and relate together in society. Politics is always about people. We make it about issues, and it's easier to be mean about issues than it is to be mean to people. And so we separate the people from the issue, but we're always talking about people and every single human being that you and I come into contact with, whatever they believe, however they live, whatever they do, every single human being falls in this category of someone created by God in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 5, God doubles down on this and he says it again. He says, This is written, this, he's talking about Adam's descendants, and he says, This is the account of the descendants of Adam. When God created human beings, he made them to be like himself. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and called them human. He blessed them. There is something uh, good in God's creation about what he created. Now, we've all been marred by sin, we've all fallen into sin. But still, underneath that, 
that crud of sin in our life, there's still the image of God that we're created in. And we have to remember that when we're talking about people and when we're talking about politics. All people are created in God's image and all people are beloved by God. Amen? So what is the Christ-like response to people we see as political enemies? They are created by God in the image of God, beloved by God. God has a plan and a purpose for their life. Whatever politician you want to put in front of that or whatever belief system you want to put in front of that. I think, um, I think that it's, it's, it's easy when we don't know these people and they're just caricatures on TV to paint them in a certain picture and it's easy to forget that person is created by God in the image of God, in the likeness of God, beloved by God. You know, we love our own children, and imagine um, raising your child the best you can, and then your child choosing an, an alternative lifestyle than what you would prefer, and people who are supposed to love on your child, aka Christians, call your kid mean, nasty names, or make horrible memes about them because of decisions that your kid's making. And, and all the while, you know, I love my kid. My kid is, is my heartbeat. My kid, they're just deceived and they need to make better decisions no matter what route, drugs or, or whatever, no matter what route they're taking. And you know, because you're their parent, I love them. And I wish that people would love on them too so that they could see Christ. And just like we would want that for our own children, God is saying, these people, all people are my children who are created in my image and who I love so much. And I want my kids, my the Christian believers, I want them to recognize how special and how beloved each human being is in my eyes. And what did Jesus say about enemies? Love your enemies and pray for them, right? And I think maybe the reason he said to love your enemies and to pray for your enemies is when you pray for your enemies, you find out they're not really your enemy. People are never your real enemy. The enemy uses people. He deceives people into being used by him, but he, they are never the real enemy. There's always a spiritual motivation behind it. Come on. And so if we can get to the place where we can see past the behavior to the spiritual influence behind them and say that person is just deceived. That person's not not doesn't understand the calling of God on their life and the purpose of God on their life, but they're trapped in sin just like I was before I got saved. And so if I want to see transformation in their life, I've got to love them like some Christian loved me one day in the past. We find out that people aren't really our enemies at all, and actually it's not us versus them, it's just all of us versus Satan. Come on, we can move on. How should we treat people whose views don't up, line up with our biblical beliefs? Um, you know, I think this one is really, uh, we were talking about this this week, and um, it all goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 5. That person was created by God, in the image of God, and beloved by God. And so no matter what they're experiencing, just like God had compassion on you and I, that we have compassion on them. We are an expression of God's love and God's compassion toward them, even if we don't agree. This is part of the problem in American politics right now is we've stopped having conversations. And we've just started talking at each other and running each other over to get our voice uh, heard that we haven't actually heard the other person and sought to not just be understood, but to understand their point of view. And I think maybe if we took some time to really try to understand someone else's point of view, we might figure out they're not actually demon-possessed. <laughs> you know what I, Because don't we make it out like that? Like, oh, that person, that politician on TV, demon-possessed. I've seen the memes. I've seen some of y'all in this room share those memes. But I think if you'd spend time and just understand, you might find out, actually, no, they're really just trying to do the best they can in the world as they see it. And if we look for a way to understand and not just be understood and express the love and compassion of God to them, guess what? Then you have influence in that person's life to be a witness to that person. But when you just write them off, you've lost any credibility with them. 
and you've lost any influence in their life. We're supposed to be witnesses, and you can't witness to someone who won't listen. And they won't listen if you don't listen, and if you don't spend time developing a relationship and compassion. Draw people in who look at the world differently than you rather than pushing them away. Draw them in to a conversation. Draw them in and gain the influence in their life that you can speak into their life. And you might find out they might be right about some things. And maybe I need to change something that I've believed or I've thought. How many knows you're not right about everything? Look at your neighbor say, you're not right about everything. You're not right about everything. You're not right about everything. Yeah, you're not. And we can learn from other people's experiences. How should we treat other people whose views don't line up? Compassion, 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 compassion. Love, seek to understand, not just be understood and be a witness. You know, um, when we were talking about this earlier this week, I I said um, it's easy whenever it's, you know, let's talk about politics of adults who are way far off or whatever, but... Let's think about a 13-year-old girl who gets pregnant and doesn't know what to do. Her views are obviously going to be different than our Christian beliefs if she's desperate. Or 25-year-old girl with no support system, no biblical backing to say, man, this life is sacred. And instead of us uh, condemning and judging and lacking compassion towards people in their own situation, Jesus just says, love on them, look for opportunities for those conversations. And also remember that when we are having conversations and little ears are hearing, that we're not letting those young boys or young girls who hear our conversations about whatever issue it is to be full of hate and judgment and um, so harsh because Honestly, that's a a lot of the reason why so many people of all ages choose to not return back to church because of how they were met whenever they were in their time of desperation. Um, You know, we we hear the stories of people lining up outside of Planned Parenthood with red paint, throwing it on girls as they walk out of a clinic. And I've read the Bible and I don't think Jesus ever did anything remotely close to that. What Jesus did was he went to the well and had a conversation with the woman at the well. He met her where she was. And he said, come on, I I have the answer for you, not the world. I have the answer and you'll never thirst again. That's our job to love people beyond even our comprehension and just see them through God's eyes. So what are the Christian views on current hot-button issues? We have four hot-button issues that we're going to delve into Scripture, and Pastor Seth is going to elaborate more on what, is, what are the Christian views or biblical views on these hot-button issues, topics that we have in our culture today. Yeah, so the first one, and we actually did a Google search this week. What are the hot button issues this year in politics? And we picked a few out that um, are kind of the headliners and the ones that are coming up in debates and in conversations right now in the news. And the first one is um, a big one, especially with the Supreme Court confirmation and stuff, is the value of human life. And um, wanted to address that. And and we're not just talking about uh, abortion here. We're talking about human life and all human life. Now, of course, our our mind first goes to Roe v. Wade and abortion and those kinds of things. And uh, Scripture does not directly address abortion as we understand it. There's nothing in Scripture that talks about it. It wasn't something that was uh, the the medical procedure wasn't developed then. You know, I'm I'm sure there are ways that people could accomplish an abortion if they wanted to. But the, the Scripture doesn't deal with it specifically. But the Scripture addresses Uh, taking innocent life, and the scripture calls that murder. Um, And I know that's a harsh word, and if there are people watching, I'm going to get all kinds of emails and stuff after today, but uh, it'll be okay. But um, it does deal with the taking of innocent life, and scripture is very clear on that. It makes it into the top ten. You know what I mean? So, um, also, scripture and Christian teaching clearly uh, emphasize and unquestionably emphasize the inherent value and sanctity and preciousness of human life. 
um, all human lives. And so you go back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 5. Every single human being created in God's image, in God's likeness, uh, beloved by God. Every single human life. So the question has to become, and this is the debate, is when does life begin? Because no one on either side says that life is invaluable. The debate is when does life begin? And Scripture's pretty clear on what it says about human life in the womb. If you look at just a couple of verses, Psalm 139, this passage of Scripture is often called the divine ultrasound. It's talking, uh, this is David writing, King David. He says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body, and all the days all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God was intimately interested in the development of that human life in the womb before that before that child was ever born. Uh, and he had ordained and established that child's days before that child was ever born. I think that's a pretty clear indication of what God thinks about a child in the womb. Now look at this scripture. Uh, I don't think it's on the, on, the, um, on the screen, but Jeremiah 1, verse 5. God's speaking to Jeremiah the prophet, and he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. God had a plan for Jeremiah before he ever experienced birth. And so I think that it's a pretty clear indication of Scripture that God has a plan for children in the womb and that God loves children in the womb and that there's life in that womb. And a lot of science indicates that too. You have to do some uh, acrobatics logically to come up with an idea that that's not a full human life in the womb. You've got to do some maneuvering, you know, in, in your logic and your rhetoric to decide that a life in the womb isn't a separate individual life. And so God is clearly interested in the development of a new life inside the womb. And even in gestation, God has plans and a purpose for that life that's being created. So I think that's pretty clear. God, God has a value. And so taking that life would fall under a category of, of your, you're doing something you're, you're playing God in that child's life, and that's not our job. Amen? Now let me, I'll leave that one there, but let me take it further. And the value of human life goes beyond the womb. I get a little concerned when it sounds like most Christians are pro-birth instead of pro-life. And we're pro-life no matter what stage that life is in, pre-birth or post-birth. If that person's breathing, that person's life has value. Come on. And so it goes beyond that, and I get concerned when we forget that because God cares about life. He is pro-life, but he's pro-all lives. He's pro-black lives. He's pro-poor lives. He's pro-white lives. He's pro-liberal lives and conservative lives. He's always, always, always pro-life. Amen? So take a look at this. God is particularly protective over children, the poor, the disadvantaged, and the foreigner. Look at these scriptures. Matthew 18, 6. Jesus is speaking here, and he's talking about children, and he says, whoever causes one of these little ones that believe in me to sin, or the Greek there actually is uh, to offend, whoever offends one of these little ones, whoever commits an offense against one of these children, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Y'all know what a millstone is? In my town growing up, there used to be an old corn mill where they, where they would make cornmeal that you make cornbread out of. It was the best stuff around. And we, they would, you could go and watch them make it. And this millstone was about, I mean, from me to, to that mic stand there. I mean, that's how wide it is, a huge rock. And the, the corn would run through it. And Jesus is saying, you offend one of these innocent children. You cause one of them to sin. You sin against one of these innocent children. And it would be better for you to have that big old rock tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. That's how seriously he takes the lives of children. I'll get in trouble for this one. That's how seriously he takes the lives of those children on our southern border. I'm not getting into the policy of it because I understand there are security issues and all those kinds of things. But when we just 
nonchalantly, you nonchalantly kind of pass it off as that's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It is a big deal. And we should be, we should be speaking out and standing up for those innocent lives. Those children had no choice in the matter. Look at this scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 10. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? He cares about people who are orphans and widows. Those are, that's code for the disadvantaged of society. Orphans and widows were the lowest of the low on the economic spectrum in that time. And he says, I'm going to make sure that they're treated fairly, and I'm going to make sure they're treated right. And if they're not, you, my people, are going to have to answer for that. You're going to be held accountable for that. And then he even says, treat the foreigner, treat the traveling foreigner through your land well, because you were a foreigner in Egypt, and I've delivered you, and I took you out, and I treated you with kindness. It goes back to that. We don't just receive God's love and God's forgiveness. We extend that love and that forgiveness to other human beings. The value of human life, every stage of life, no matter their color, their language, their religion, whatever it is, we, we believe in life. Amen? Amen. One more thing. I want to say this. A person's sinfulness does not diminish the value of that person's life in God's eyes. A person's sinfulness does not diminish the value of that person's life in God's eyes. What do I mean by that? It doesn't matter how much you sin, God doesn't value you any less. He still thinks your life is more. It doesn't matter if you believe some false religion. It doesn't matter if you're an idolater. It doesn't matter what you have done. Think of the most evil person you can think of in your lifetime. You might think of someone like Hitler or something like that, the most evil person you could ever think of. Listen. A person's sinfulness does not diminish that person's value in God's eyes. How do I know that? Romans 5a. While we were still sinners, God demonstrates his love for us in this. Christ died for us. He died for sinners. It, that sinner's life was worth the blood of Jesus. That's how valuable it is. Come on. The value of human life. We, we vote for life. We believe in life. All stages of life. All right? All right, next one. Um, human sexuality and gender issues. It's a hot-button issue. It's getting mentioned in the debates. It's in the headlines right now. Um, we want to be particularly humble about how we speak on this issue. Uh, I want to say this. God created sex. He invented it. He came up with the idea of it. He likes it. It's a good thing. It, it was a gift to humanity. We believe that, and we need to talk about it maybe a little more in church because uh, it's getting talked about in school, you know? And so don't hide this kind of stuff from your, from your children. But God created sex, and it is a gift for the health and the intimacy of a married couple in the covenant of marriage. It is God's creation to bring couples together to make two flesh one, to multiply and fill the earth, to fulfill one of God's first commandments, which was to go and fulfill and fill the earth and, and populate the earth. And so the, we are not anti-sex. Now, however, there is something called sexual sin. And sin, when it deals with sex, is any kind of sexual activity or gratification that occurs outside, um, in any other way, outside of the covenant of marriage. Any, any sexual activity or gratification outside the covenant of marriage. And we understand in Scripture that there's no other concept of marriage in Scripture except between one man and one woman. And so that's how we view. And so we kind of make it like a hot-button issue about specific orientations. But if that's the definition of sexual sin, then that addresses pornography, that address, addresses lust, that address, addresses uh, sexual relationships before marriage, that addresses uh, adultery and breaking the covenant of marriage, and all of that falls in the category of sexual sin. So culture makes it about one or two orientation issues, but there's a much deeper issue. It's something like the statistics are 65 to 70% of believers, men, believers, are addicted to pornography. 
And the, the statistic for preachers is not any different. 65 to 70% of pastors in America are addicted to pornography. So it goes a lot deeper than just one or two buzzwords that are in the news. You know what I'm saying? You follow me with that? But we, we've, we're clear. Sexual sin is anything outside of that covenant of marriage. We don't focus on just one of these issues at the expense of looking in the mirror and examining our own lives and our own hearts. And I think that's part of how we've gotten painted in culture as uncaring, unloving, and hate, hateful toward certain populations because we haven't been willing to look at the mirror in the mirror and we've only been wanting to correct other people's sin instead of our own. Um, I do have some cultural trends that I'm concerned about as a pastor, as a father, as, um, as a Christian. Uh, whatever the world says about marriage and whatever the Supreme Court decides and whatever the laws say, that doesn't change God's word. And we need to be careful to not let politics change our convictions. I am concerned, and we're going to talk a little bit about religious freedom in a second, but there are some issues and maybe some things coming down the pike, especially if a certain party becomes in power about forcing views on believers, and we need to be aware of that. But our, our convictions don't change just because the law changes. Amen? Um, I'm concerned about hypersexualization of children. Uh, and I don't mean just Netflix. I mean it happens in our, our communities. It happens in how we dress our children. You go through Walmart and you see some of the clothes that, that, that are manufactured for little girls and how they're, they're, they're meant to draw attention. And I'm, I'm concerned about that as the father of a two-year-old daughter. Um, just not dressing our children modestly. I get concerned, and I know Katie's going to think I'm getting on a soapbox here. I get concerned about certain uh, cheerleading teams and that kind of thing and how you dress your, your daughters and, and the attention that that draws to people. I get concerned about... Uh, young children's access to social media. Um, there was a horrific video that um, some of you may have seen on, on Facebook that showed this, these people that created a fake preteen girl's profile to see how long it would take before a grown man would message her. Uh, two minutes. Two minutes that she, a predator was already on this fake profile trying to, to get details from this young girl, this fake young girl they had created. I'm concerned about um, the access that's being given to some of our, our kids. Um, the entertainment that we watch, uh, the things that we watch. So this isn't just about one Netflix m film that was out there. It, it goes deeper, and it starts at home. So I'm concerned about that and want you to think about that. Um, there are those, and this is a, a big issue right now, those that struggle with their identity, their their gender, their their understanding of, of how they were created and how they're supposed to express themselves, and they're struggling with with understanding who they are. And, and my first and foremost thing is I, I want to be compassionate and loving because there is a legitimate struggle going on. No one puts their body through some of those things if there's not a legitimate struggle that's happening. So we want to be compassionate. We want to be loving towards people like that. And we want to understand that Satan always attacks our God-given identity. He will never want you to live up to your God-given identity, and so he attacks that. And some people... That is a major struggle in their life. So human beings, uh, we, we have to understand, we can't give in to the struggle. We can't give in to the struggle against Satan. We have to take a stand in our own personal lives when Satan tries to attack our identity. Um, instead, we seek to get, we, we don't give in to the struggle that Satan puts in our lives. Instead, we seek the one who can give us victory over the struggle who can give us and sustain us and heal us and deliver us and set us free from the struggle. And so that's who we need to be pointing to, not to a law about bathrooms and that kind of thing, but listen, listen, hey, Jesus loves you and he has a plan for your life and he can give you freedom over this because my concern even with the medical field and with the media and culture right now is just give in to the struggle and follow that temptation and that struggle wherever it leads you instead of resisting it and pointing people to Jesus. Come on. Um, I, I think it, we get into dangerous territory when we start arguing with God about our identity, where we say, God, you didn't create me correctly, and so I'm going to change how you created me. Look at uh, Isaiah 45. It says, What sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, Stop it, you're doing it wrong? And does the pot exclaim how clumsy you can be? We are the clay. He is the potter. And the clay doesn't get to decide who I am or what my purpose is. 
We seek the potter out for our purpose and for our identity. And that's who we point people to. We're not the potter, we're the clay. We don't tell God who we want to be or what we want to be. We say, God, you made us this way. Now help me discover my purpose. Help me discover my identity. Religious freedom. So religious freedom is a, a big one, and this is one that doesn't get talked about enough because um, I don't know. You guys may, may know who uh, Dr. George Wood is. I almost played a video from him this week uh, because I wanted you to see something. Dr. George Wood was the former Assemblies of God superintendent, the, the, the pastor of all the pastors in the United States that are Assemblies of God pastors, and he's also a lawyer. He sits on the bar in California, and um, he's, he's a, a brilliant legal mind. And he's very informed on some of these issues. And there are already laws written just waiting for a certain majority in Congress that will heavily restrict religious freedom in this country. They're just simply waiting to have the votes to enforce these laws. And we need to be very careful. That's why, you know, when I've talked to you about the platform of the party and you need to read deep down because they don't put that stuff at the top, you know, and understand what you're voting for and who you're voting for. It's very important. The current... There is a current threat to religious freedom, particularly um, if your religious beliefs are countercultural, if they're not popular, if they're not politically correct. So we need to take a stand in our voting for religious freedom because we, we believe in religious freedom in this country. This isn't necessarily a biblical idea because the Bible, no one had religious freedom in the Bible. You know, they were persecuted if they didn't believe the way the state believed. It's a, it's a blessing and a fortunate thing that we have in this country. Um, but if we stand for religious freedom in the United States of America, you need to understand something. That means you stand for religious freedom of all religions. We can't pick and choose which ones because then one day when the votes and the majority is on the other side, then they can pick and choose which ones. You following me? So it has to be if I stand for religious freedom, I stand for religious freedom for all religions. You have the ability to practice that. God gives us a choice and who we serve, and what we believe. Look at Joshua 24. It says, if it's evil in the eyes of, to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Choose whom you're going to serve, whether the gods of your fathers, who of your fathers served in the re region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God, through Joshua, the leader of the nation of Israel at that time, is saying, you can choose. You can choose who you want to follow. That's important. God gives us a choice. We are moral free agents. We have a choice. And then Jesus does this again in John chapter 6, verse 66 through 69. It's right after Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And if you want to follow me, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And that's kind of weird. And people don't know what to do with that. And Jesus says to them, he turns to them, uh, many deserted him after he said that. And Jesus turned to the 12 and said, are you also going to leave? He gave them the option to leave. But look at their response. Lord, where would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you're the Holy One of God. So you have a choice, but let's make the choice a little bit easier by pointing people to the one who has the words for eternal life. If we don't like the current cultural and political and religious trends in our nation, the answer is not to say they don't have a part in our nation. The answer is just to be better evangelists. Because if we start saying you can't be in public life because of what you believe, guess what? That will turn against us at some point. So the answer isn't isolate them. The answer is to draw them in and be better evangelists. Y'all are quiet on that one. Deb's with me. She's nodding her head. Nobody else is. You know, um, religious freedom biblically is not something that Jesus says we're necessarily supposed to take a stand on. He doesn't say make yourself look like a fool over the issue of religious freedom. Actually, he says that you should be willing to lay down your life for me. So, you know, all the most of the disciples were killed because there was a lack of religious freedom. And the expectation of Christians is to endure persecution, to endure bullying, to endure whatever, you know, whatever 
someone might say about your beliefs or your Christianity, that's what Jesus says about religious freedom is, yes, in my eyes, you have an option to choose whether you want to serve me. But if you do serve me, that doesn't mean that everyone's going to like it that you're serving me. And I'm concerned and I've had to evaluate my own life. I'm concerned that Christians, we just want religious freedom because we just want to be able to walk in the doors and do what we want in here. And it stops there. Or we tie religious freedom in with gun control. And the reality is, if we're going to serve Jesus, then we have to do something with that religion that we're so adamant about having freedom for. Am I willing to be so bold that I would literally lay down my life for the cause of Christ? I'm going to be honest, that's scary to me. But we cannot think that if America decides suddenly that Christians will be persecuted and and that our lives will be taken, that, oh, all of a sudden everyone is is uh, we're we're going to be in hiding or, or whatever, or that Christianity is over. God is still on the throne. He still reigns. And your choice, our choice, my choice, I have to choose right now in, in the face of whatever persecution that I might have to endure, will I still be excited about my religion? Do I really want to serve Christ? Do I really, really want that, that freedom to share Christ? And maybe before it gets to that point, a really great evaluation that we could all have, myself included, is have I shared with Christ with anybody this past week? I'm free to do that right now. I have all the freedom that I would ever want to tell someone about Jesus Christ. But do I let days or weeks go by without doing that? I have the freedom to. And that's the whole point of Christianity. The point of Christianity isn't for us to come on Sunday morning for an hour and a half and sing our songs and shake our hands and leave. The point of Christianity is to say no matter what, no matter who says what, I am going to make disciples of other people. I am going to share Christ. And that's really the heart of religious freedom for, for Christians should be. No matter America and, and what policies come down the pike, no matter what that means for our church here, am I committed to the cause of Christ? Amen. There will be an altar call at the end. Um, one more hot button issue. Racism and prejudice, it's something that's being brought up a lot right now and, and accusations are thrown everywhere. We were talking about this one. I, I think we have made it clear as your pastors where we stand on this issue. Um, if you go back and look at the last year of our preaching that we, we've made it clear, uh, we, we stand, we are anti-racists in this church. And that's what we believe. And if you're not on board with that, you're in the wrong church because we're anti-racists at this church. Now, uh, racism is an egregious sin and we need to deal with it. And we need to recognize when we have those tendencies and we need to examine our own prejudices in our own lives because all of us have some sort of prejudice in our lives. We all have just baked it in. It's just how you were brought up. It's how you're raised. And so we have to just be willing to lay our hearts at the altar and say, God, you know, fix us when we make mistakes. And then if you notice it, it doesn't make you mean you're a horrible person. It just means, okay, that's like a warning light on the dashboard of something needs to be worked on in my life. That's all it is. But we want to stand against it. We want to make sure that we're being anti-racist. And we want to avoid the temptation to get drawn into the anger and the hatred that's being sold on the media. And say, you know what? I, no, I don't follow that voice or this voice. I only follow God's word and the voice of the Holy Spirit. And that's where we're at. And we want to make sure not to get drawn in. I've told you guys for the past several weeks, there's a whole billions of dollars worth of industry that their whole purpose is to get you mad enough at someone else that you vote a certain way or do a certain thing. And listen, we want to disengage from all of that. That means turning off the news, turn off the ever-loving news. You know what I mean? Just turn it off sometimes. Stay informed, but turn some of that stuff off. It's not good for you. It's not good for you to build up this anger and hatred in your heart towards other people and that kind of thing. Just two scriptures to drink, drive that point home. Uh, John 7, 24, words of Jesus. He says, stop judging by mere appearance, but instead judge correctly. Don't judge by appearance, but judge correctly. 
God judges by the heart. For, and then Romans 10, 12, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. And that there really in the New Testament was an understanding of different races because of skin color. In the Middle East and, and the, the Eastern world uh, in the first century, you would have seen every shade of skin color imaginable as part of the church, as part of the kingdom. It, wouldn't, it wasn't about skin color, but there was a division between Jew and Gentile. And there was a division between nationalities. And, and Jesus, God in his word is speaking that and saying, look, there's, there's no distinction. You're all human beings. Genesis 1, created in God's image, in God's likeness, beloved by God. Amen? Amen. So how can I, or how can you, you can say this to yourself, how can I recognize when my thinking or values need to shift or change? Yeah. Um, I think one is, is when you realize that you uh, are totally ignoring the other person. You ever get in those debates where you're not really listening to what they're saying, you're just waiting for them to shut up so you can say what you want to say? You know, and maybe I'm not listening because I don't want to hear what they have to say. Maybe that's an opportunity to re-examine some things. When I realize that my personal values don't up, line up with Scripture. So what God says and what God's Word says is always relevant, no matter what culture says. And um, whenever I think... Well, this is what God's word says, but that's not really the popular thing. So maybe the popular vote is is how I should think. Ooh, that's that's where we get into a, a place where we need to say, okay, something. This is a red flag for me. Something needs to shift. Where my thought wasn't what's God's word say, but my thought was what's TV say or what does social media say? What do politics say? What does my friends say? No, what does God's word say about these topics? Yeah. Um, when I, uh, when you're thinking of someone and your first thought isn't God loves them or compassion toward them, you know, and, and honestly, that's not often our first thought, but that's God's first thought. And so maybe we need to re-examine some things and I want to do the next one too. Uh, the next one that we had written down here is one that I just had a personal experience with recently. There was, um, a very prominent, a very prominent evangelist in our church fellowship, uh, at one of the Midwestern states up north of us, um, but very prominent, very well known. And I just happened to come across his uh, Facebook. He's an evangelist. It's his job to go around and preach the gospel. The job of an evangelist is to tell people about Jesus. Amen? I just happened to scroll through this guy's Facebook back several months, several months through, because I was curious. Um, lots of Donald Trump on his Facebook and lots of uh, the, the evil memes about Nancy Pelosi and, and, you know, different people and lots of anger about certain politicians. It took me three months back before I saw anything about Jesus on this man's Facebook, an evangelist, a preacher. I think, I think that's indicative of maybe a lot of Christians right now. When our... Our presence in the world right now, especially when we're not getting together socially a lot because of COVID, our presence in front of our friends and family is our social media. It's an extension of what we speak for, what we stand for, what we believe. And it's fine to have views about politics. I'm not saying you shouldn't, and I'm not saying you shouldn't speak about them, but there's a right way and a wrong way to speak about them. And when I have to scroll back three months before I see you say anything about Jesus, but you call yourself a Christian, or three weeks, you, you know? I mean, this is, should be our daily presentation before people. And so I want to encourage you to go back and look at your own stuff that you've shared and say, okay, am I representing Christ in the things that I'm saying and speaking and sharing? And again, I'm not saying you can't take a stance on political issues or that you can't have honest and humble conversations with people about, about political issues. I want you to. I want you to have influence in our community and in your sphere of influence. I want you to have that. But how do you do it, and are you taking Jesus with you when you have those conversations? That's another thing. Just examine your Facebook page or your, your Twitter or something and say, okay, am I representing Christ here? The next one, my kids aren't compassionate. If I hear that my kids first response towards people is not compassion or love, that's a red flag because they're learning that from somewhere. And if they're learning it from me or from my spouse or from our family, then we need to do some adjustments in our conversation. 
If they're learning that from TV, then we need to change the channel. If they're learning that from school, then we have conversation. And listen, so many of these things that we've mentioned, um, it's never too late to make a readjustment. It's never too late to say, we got to pull back on some of this stuff. We got we to gotta shift and, and not watch some of this stuff on TV. Or we've got to shift our conversation at home to, to not even include things that don't represent Christ. And um, our kids are very telling of us. And, and we want our kids to grow up to be not only model citizens in, in our world, but citizens of heaven. And, and we want them to carry on Christ for the next generation. And so if, if I hear conversation, um, that, that doesn't represent that from my kids, then, then we got to make a shift. And, and on that is also, um, what are we filling our lives with? You know, garbage in, garbage out. This, what I'm about to say is, is not because, um, I want, I'm saying that I'm holier than anyone in the room. This is a personal conviction that I've had over the last, actually, couple of weeks. Um, I used to, when I would get in the car every morning, I, first of all, I wake up in barely enough time to get out of the door when I need to, and he helps me get out of the door with coffee and, and, uh, breakfast and stuff. And so I'm not doing my Bible reading time in the morning. That would, that's a fail for me. I, I don't, I'm not a morning person. Um, and so when I would get in the car, I had not had any time with the Lord. I would get in the car and turn on the Bobby Bones show. Cause I think it's funny to listen to the Bobby Bones show in the mornings for my 10 minute drive to Danville. In between them talking, I would listen to there be country music on the radio that doesn't always represent Christ or biblical standards. We're talking about drinking. We're talking about sleeping with other people. We're talking about partying, all those things. And I would go through my eight-hour day at work. I would get in the car. The radio was still country when I got in there. I'd go get Ainsley. And then we would come home. And I started recognizing, really, until Ainsley goes to bed or until, like, I'm playing worship videos for her while she's eating a snack, I haven't had any time with Christ. And so I have started over the last couple of weeks, instead of turning on Bobby Bones' show in my 10-minute drive, I have started just listening to worship music, and it has been a very hard transition in my life because I like the Bobby Bones show. I've been listening to it for five, six years. But, um, man, I, I feel so much better throughout the day because I'm starting my day off in a different way. And I also started thinking about if I'm driving and Ainsley's listening to what I'm listening to, we don't drink in our house, but she's hearing about drinking on the radio. And we we don't talk, say certain words in our house, but it's coming through on the radio. And we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, and it's sacred. And, and we're listening to songs about sleeping with some girl. Man, that is a hard shift to make. And so I want to challenge you, garbage in, garbage out, and, and, and really think about that. What do my kids see on TV? Um, what, my mom was, was so strict, like one cuss word across the house. Somehow she would hear and be like, turn it off, you know. <laughs> but that was a standard in our house, and I knew where my mom stood, and, and I'm so thankful for it because garbage in, garbage out. And so I want to challenge parents in the room, evaluate what's going on in your house or in your car or on, on your kids' devices, on your devices throughout the day. And think about, just have that as a motto, garbage in, garbage out. And it may not come out immediately. Ainsley may not in the morning say, can I have a beer, mom? But down the road, if I'm saying, Hey, Ainsley, this is what we believe. We, we believe in these biblical principles and standards, but every other outlet that we have coming into our house doesn't represent that. Well, that's kind of like a double standard, and I imagine that she would have some difficulty understanding why, why we're saying one thing but doing the other. So uh, I love everyone, and, and it has been a, an evaluation for our own lives, and I challenge you, evaluate that for your own life, and is this something that I need to hear, 
that I need to sing along with, that I need to listen to from TV or my kids because I want to, um, you know, do whatever I can to have only good and, and holy things coming into my house. Well, you know, just to piggyback off that for a second, um, it's not even necessarily always a sin issue. I, and you guys have heard me talk about this, I am prone to uh, depression. And, and to experiencing depression. And there was a period in my life several years ago where uh, I loved classic country music, the old stuff. I loved it. You know, I just, Johnny Cash was my hero. I, I love Johnny Cash. I still do um, all this kind of stuff. But there was a period in my life where I recognized I was listening to some depressing music that was keeping me in my depression. You know, uh, George Jones, He Stopped Loving Her Today. You know, I, that was my song, man. I loved it. I was like, this is such a great song, you know. And it, I understand it. And it makes sense to me. And it, it's, it, it gives voice to my feelings. But it was keeping me in those feelings instead of helping me get out of them. And so it's not even always about, are they talking about sin? It could just be about something that's not giving you the right outlook on life, you know. And we have to fill our minds uh, that scripture says whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's good, you know, that's what we fill our lives with, and that's what we're going to get out of life, too. Whatever you put in is what you're going to get out. So, uh, Let's skip ahead. The final thing, things to think about before voting. Pastor Seth has four key things to just keep in mind over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, some of you have already voted. If you haven't, you can go vote early. But um, number one, uh, what is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? What's the Holy Spirit speaking to you before you go vote? Um, seek the Holy Spirit's guidance and wisdom. The Holy Spirit searches the heart of men, and he knows the heart of those candidates. He knows the heart of those, and he can lead you and guide you in wisdom. Amen? Um, educate yourself. Don't be an ignorant voter. And educate yourself not just on who you think is your side and you know what they stand for, but what does the other side stand for? And where are some areas they might be right? And probably a, an indication that you're being an ignorant voter is if you're just voting all the way R or all the way D down your, down your ticket. Because there might be someone with a D behind their name that's the best person for that particular office, but there might be someone with the R behind their name which is the best person for that other office. And so yeah, it's okay to do that. Believe it or not, you won't go to hell. <laughs> okay. That's, and so it's okay. Educate yourself on who's the right person and the right policy and the right candidate for the right job. Um, and then number three and four, I, I, or the third one, which party candidate or policy is going to do the least harm to the fewest people? Which candidate, policy, or, or party is going to do the least harm to the fewest people? And then the next one, which party candidate or policy is going to do the most good for the most people? Now, they're in that order for a reason. First, we figure out who's going to do more harm. And then we figure out who's going to do more good. If you, get the, if you get that order wrong, then we tend to say, who's going to do the most good for me and the people I know? And we don't care about what might be good for me might be harmful to someone else. So the first thing we ask is, who's going to do the least harm to the least amount of people? And then we say, okay, after we kind of cut those out, Who's going to do the most good for the most people? You following why we're putting in that order? Does that make sense? Because we don't want what's good for one group to be harmful to another group. We're always for the good of people because we're for life, right? And we're for life abundantly and all those lives matter to God. Amen.